episode of See Something, Say Something. I'm your host, Carson Porter. Today, my guests, Diana Fishman and Ricardo Baltazar, are talking about Pedro Almodovar's most recent film, Pain and Glory, which was released in 2019 to considerable acclaim. And uh, for those of you who have not seen the film, spoilers abound. We're going to talk about each and every aspect of the movie. And if you don't want to have the film spoiled for you in advance, please go watch the film and then come back to this podcast at a later date. Uh, But for those of you who have, join us as we talk about all the crises that unfold in a late filmmaker's life. Welcome, Ricardo. Welcome, Diana. Hey, Carson. Thanks for having us. Great to be here, Carson. Thanks for the warm welcome. We all watched the same movie. See? Ricardo, Did you, you said you watched it like sort of when it came out, but did you watch it again? Yeah, I watched it when it first came out um, last year uh, in the theater, which was 10 times more beautiful than watching it at home, I guess, because you got the big screen. Uh, but I had actually been meaning to watch it again, and it was sort of taunting me in my to-watch-again list, basically. Even better the second time watching it. Diana... What was your favorite part of it? I actually really enjoyed the scenes where I think it's Alberto Crespo's character is on stage performing the addiction. Um, I thought that was really gorgeous. And then I think the second time around, uh, as I, I was sort of like going back and forth through some of the scenes, I was trying to dig a little deeper in the scenes with his mother when she's older and living with him. I think because they were so completely torturous, that's something in me connected to that a little bit. It's it's funny, like the scenes with the mom, I that was the one sort of like this film is sort of all about reunions and moments from your past where you either have regret or you want to revisit for whatever reason, right? It's sort of like the ultimate midlife crisis movie. Um especially for this one sort of tortured man and it seems like he's past midlife. He's on to the twilight on of his life. I came to it very much as a man who's entering his midlife crisis. Although I can't afford a Porsche, I can definitely revisit the rest of the things in my life that have come before this moment. And I know that I've gone down the roads of, you know, my first crush, my first romantic, serious engagement that might not have worked out for whatever reasons, my relationship with my family, like all these things that he's visiting throughout this movie and i agree diana like i think the part that was most arresting was the part that i thought was going to be not very good seeing the one man show like it's not exactly my favorite art form and it was a perfect illustration of what uh salvador mayo says right before that scene where he's like you need to do it this way i won't give you any notes but don't cry like the best actors don't show the tears. And that's exactly what he does. He's on the verge of breaking down throughout that whole or leading up throughout that whole performance. And that's what gives it its emotional weight. Like it was a perfect illustration of a director actually directing someone. And then the result of that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that 
that specific moment in the film um, for me is definitely like, I mean, there's so many beautiful moments within the film, but I think that that moment in which, you know, he sort of sets aside his ego and, you know, wants to share his script with his friend, let alone wants his friend to take credit for the script, um, I think is a moment of like, it's a moment of clarity uh, for him um, as a writer, as an artist. And he wants to be able to, he wants to be able to tell that story to the world, but not through his own eyes. Right. He wants, he's okay with having somebody else take those words and, and bring them to life. But I think what's really interesting about that is that this is the moment in the film when we really tap into queerness. Um, you know, up until this point, we, we don't really hear about that, uh, about that part of his life. Um, and you know, a lot of that has to do with sort of, you know, masculinity, right? Like what it means to, to be male, what it means to, to walk through life, um, as a successful man. Uh, and I think that like, even when he talks to his friend about, uh, taking the script, uh, I'm forgetting the character's name. What's the the other actor's name? Yeah, the character's name is, is I think, Alberto Crespo. Yeah. So he actually hints at, you know, he's like, oh, this is so different of you. He's like, he's like, well, what happened to, to the you that used to go out in women's clothing? Uh, and it's sort of, we sort of get this glimpse into it, right? And then we don't know what the script actually is or what it's about until we see the character performing it um, and is talking about this other man. Uh, and then that sort of leads to the chain of events of, you know, finding about, um, finding out about Federico, who, uh, was his former lover and like the life that they lived together. Um, and it sort of culminates in this really serendipitous moment of like the two, you know, he ends up being at the reading of this or the opening night of this, um, play of this one man show. And it just so happens that it's about him. Uh, and there's just something so beautiful about that, about like how there's this, like the serendipity leads to this moment of closure for, uh, for the main character that just sort of touches on what it means to be queer, uh, and what it means to, what it means to like be at peace with something that happened in your past. Yeah. He has that whole conversation with his former boyfriend or lover. And one of the one of the sticking points in the middle of the conversation is is Banderas's character asks him like, "Are you with a man or a woman now?" And he's like, "Oh, I, I'm getting divorced. I have a family, um, but it's all right." And Federico kind of wants that spark of the former life, whereas Mayo is like, "Yeah, that'd be nice, but I think it's time for you to go." <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Right. He he said something like at the very end, right before he leaves, like, well, when when would when have we ever cared about what God thinks? And he still turns him away, right? And he's like, It's great to see that after all these years you're still attracted to me or that I still turn you on. Uh, but you know, goodbye. Yeah, there's this line where Federico says, Let's close our story as God intended. And mm-hmm. Mayo Banderas' character is like, I never cared about God and we can close our story tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he steals that kiss and steals is like the exact perfect word i think for it it's a very forceful like i'm going to do this now and it's nice and it's sexy 
but Banderas is just like, okay, cool. I'm not even going to offer you my flan. And I mean, I think what's really interesting is that right after that is, is you know, we cut to the scene of, of Banderas sort of like letting, he, he's about to go back to the heroin and is like, actually, no, what am I doing? He wipes it away, immediately calls his uh, agent and uh, or assistant. And, you know, the next scene is they're at the doctors, you know, to really assess um, his grief and his pain and his drug use. I feel like I probably should have set up for the people that are, are listening to this that haven't seen the movie, how we got to where we are. Like Banderas's character is sort of introduced at the very beginning of the movie, suspended in a pool with a scar right down the middle of his chest that I don't think is ever explained throughout the movie. But he begins to explain all the he, he lists a litany of maladies that his body has been enduring for years. And he kind of has them like badges of honor and talks about, you know, I don't believe in I believe in God when I'm feeling more than a few of these. But on the days where I only have one malady, I'm an atheist. Like I thought was pretty good. Um, and we don't really know what he does for a living. He seems successful, but maybe he's drifting a bit. And I can't remember how he comes to go to Crespo's house, but that's sort of the kickoff of this whole exploration into his past, right? Well, he bumps into that actor in the cafe, Zulema, right? And that, that's right. It's, it's otherwise what seems like a very mundane conversation between um, two former colleagues, right? He meets this woman in this cafe. You find out that she's an actor, um, that they've worked together in the past. And all of a sudden, he's asking about Crespo. And it kind of comes and goes. And I thought it was a really curious way to go from this very dramatic scene in the pool to then like out into the world and you don't really know what's going to happen. It's like five to 10 minutes of dialogue that doesn't really give you much, or at least I couldn't, I kept, I kept going back to that to see if I was missing something. Like it just seems so, so like benign. Uh, but then it opens up that whole world of, of sort of him meeting his friend again. Uh, and sort of like suggesting that something they had had like some kind of falling out in the past. And then like he shows up at Crespo's house. Crespo, I think, is wearing like the best jacket ever covering up six or seven necklaces that cover up a Guns N' Roses T-shirt. And all the bracelets, right? <laughs> they end up in, in Crespo's backyard with rolled up aluminum foil, smoking heroin <laughs> and it comes out that like basically later in the movie, we find out that heroin is the reason that they fell apart, right? Like they had this movie that's 30 years old, that's about to be reissued. And, uh, Mayo, uh, Banderas's character is basically like, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with this. Like I've moved on Crespo. It seems like hasn't really had much of a career maybe after that movie and really wants to like make it have a big splash. And there's an opportunity here. And they bond a bit over heroin, which leads to later on the discovery as Banderas is passed out on the couch. Crespo's like, I'll just check out what's on his computer that has no password. And just like my dad. And, uh, oh, look, there's a number of scripts right on the desktop, just like my dad. And I'll just start reading some of them. And like instead of that having ramifications that are serious... Banderas is like, all right, cool. Well, I'm a little bit sorry that you read that, but maybe you could do it. Like they have a, a reconciliation later where he shows up at his door, like, no, hear me out. I have this thing that you're going to be interested in. And that's sort of the kickoff of like, 
I think that's the first re-exploration of his past. The first, like, I wonder if I can do this differently. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that at least four times leading up to that point, someone in some capacity references the amount of time that they've been apart. So 32 years keeps coming up. First, Ulema says it. Then I think at some point, Malo says it. Then at some point, Crespo says it. And it keeps sort of like, I, I wasn't sure if that was intended to sort of let us know just how significant of a fight it had been or just sort of where his career had been or in terms of age that we're looking at someone who's likely in their 60s. Um, I, it, but I thought it was funny that it kept coming up 32 years, 32 years. And then, you know, even just um, the fact that when he enters Crespo's house, the first thing he sees is the last film they worked on, right? Because he has that poster up in the kitchen. Um, Subwar. Yeah. The really badass poster of the lips wrapped around a strawberry. I think we've kind of touched on a few points of the design of this film, but like every single detail of all the interiors and all the clothes and everything to me is almost more interesting than the film itself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that there's something really interesting about like the attention of detail um, in those elements is that like, there is a strong theme of like of home of what a home is um, or what you call shelter uh, throughout the film, right? The, the scenes with him and his mother uh, sleeping in the train station, the cave that they're living in, um, in his youth, um, you know, the entering into Crespo's home for the first time, seeing how he lives and vice versa, you know, uh, him seeing um, how Penderes lives and even how his lover seeing how he, his, his former lover seeing how he currently lives. You know, the first thing he says is, when he walks in, he's like, wow, it looks like a museum in here. Um, so I think there's like an interesting thing about like home and setting and what that says a lot about a person, um, especially after reconnecting with somebody after so many years um, and what that changes, you know, despite how much you've changed over the years, the memories that you create with somebody in your past are still the same, right? And I think that those are the that's the beauty of those details that are happening um, in the film, I think. As someone who hasn't seen a lot of films by this particular director, Pedro Almodovar, I believe is how it's pronounced. Not Almodovar? Really <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll run with that. Ricardo, do you, do you have a third pronunciation for us? I've, my whole life, has, have said Almodovar, with an emphasis on the there final we go. A. But, uh, yeah. I'm sure there are many well, ways. I is is he creates these worlds that are super lush, right? Like I came to that style of filmmaking kind of through Wes Anderson because for whatever reason, like that's the path that my viewership took. But I haven't seen very many of Almodovar's movies at all, and I know that's a big blind spot in my film history. But do all of them have this same taste? the same attention to detail that is so lush and like perfect through every single frame. I mean, I, I too haven't seen very many. I've seen a few, but it is a common thread across the ones that I have seen that, you know, he does pay this attention to the environments that he's creating, but also, you know, the clothing that people are wearing, which any, any director will do. But I think that he has this point of view of like how he does it. And it is very, it is very visually similar across all, you know, the use of, of bright reds and yellows, um, 
to create texture is, is really prominent. Similarly, I've only seen two other films and it was quite some time ago. Um, the one that comes to mind is all about my mother. Um, you know, this period of the eighties in Spain is something that clearly fascinates him and that he was a big part of his career and sort of his own development. Uh, but yeah, these sort of intense, bright colors um, with that sort of dramatic lighting and an emphasis on, um, or sort of a fascination with like nighttime scenes seems to be something that I, I caught wind of in the other films. I think it's also like the lighting that he uses, um, like it really, it really serves to like emphasize like every element in a room um, to create these like beautiful vignettes that almost look like works of art, like as if they've been painted. Uh, and, you know, you see that in, in, uh, in multiple scenes, the scene in the train station that I mentioned, you know, it, it feels like a, a framed work of art. Uh, the scene where the choir boys are all on the stage and we're slowly panning into this, the scene. Yeah, it's the whole thing is a work of art, I think. I forgot about the choir director. I totally forgot about that. Like that whole scene of him auditioning all the boys who just sing as well as I do, and then landing on the angelic voice of the main character. And the director has talked about that. That's real. That is based on his real life experience where he was sent to seminary and um, is at least in that interview presented as pretty resentful, missing out on several classes in the bulk of his education because he was trapped in choir, which is a funny thing onto itself. But uh, he was not joking. He was very serious. He felt like he was cheated in some ways. That's something he touches on in the first few scenes, right? Where he's talking about his physical ailments and then moving into education elsewhere. Um and it's it's shot similarly to some extent. Like you have, there's almost a parallel between the way they present his physical ailments, and then you cut from seminary at some point to geography. I think is one of them, like anatomy. It's it's shot similarly, like almost if he was mapping out the anatomy of his like body or doing a body scan, and as opposed to like how he was mapping out how he engaged with the world around him through his maybe through his late teens and twenties. It's fascinating. Yeah, that's funny you bring that up because I felt like those graphics felt like textbooks. Yeah. You know, the illustration style feels like something you would see in one of your high school textbooks. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the interesting thing about those visuals is that like they, they have so much texture um, and, you know, they're all based in fact, but he's describing these things from the perspective of the way that life has taught him those things, right? Traveling as a, as a filmmaker, um, you know, discovering the human form, uh, through his sexual experiences. Uh, it's, it's, it's weird to see it that way. It's an, it's a weird contrast, but it's, I think that's what makes it so intriguing. Diana, I think you brought up in chats, just how much art history comes alive in this film. Like, did you see classic works hidden in there or were they just influenced by stuff that you'd known about? I mean, I was just geeking out the whole time. Something that is from from like sort of the history lesson like point of view, which I definitely did a little bit of digging um, after my first viewing of the, of the film was he grew up in a dictatorship, like 60s in Spain. Um, like we're talking like Guernica. Like that was, you know, that's what he grew up in. Um, 
And then in the 80s, you have sort of this reprisal. Uh, and, and one of the artists who named, whose name I'm going to butcher, so I'm just not going to say it, but whose work is featured predominantly throughout his household, uh, is sort of taking another look at those surrealist works, taking a work, at, um, taking a look at the the Scuola Metaphysica, and like blowing that up. And and a predominant character or feature trait throughout all of those compositions is the mannequin, right? Like the automaton, like the new Greek gods of that era are faceless. Um, they are not overly muscular. You project onto them what you want to be um, and what you want them to represent. And I think the fact that that played throughout so heavily in his in his interior scenes um, just like kind of blew my mind. I kept going between like 1920s, 1980s, back and forth, back and forth. And I think then considering when he released this film and where Spain is now, right, with politics and the far right kind of coming again to the fore, a lot of people have been saying like Franco is rising from the dead. I think it's sort of an interesting political commentary as well. That's my geek out moment. <laughs> Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> but he also shows his own work, guys. There's several scenes where there's, I, I can't tell what the medium is, where he's showing this, this um, still life with flowers. That's his work. He created that. That's El Moldovar. That's there's, there's so many of those vases throughout the, the, the scenes of this film. And they're all sort of of a piece, even though they're in different people's houses. Yeah. It's like they, they're, they found their way into the, the hands, right, of the of the prop stylist. And they're like, here you go, here you go. Here's a thread <laughs> of visual happening across every scene. Um, no, I want to I go back to that point, Diana, that you made about um, sort of the faceless uh, personas in, within the art, right? I think that that speaks a lot to, like, the themes in this film of, like, of how you create yourself, you know, how you, how you move around the world and how every experience that you have, you know, builds up to who you are and how the world sees you. And I think that speaks a lot to the title of the film, right? What, like, what is it, what is, what is glory for him as a writer, you know, is, is that success um, that he finds glory in um, about his experiences that he finds glory in. Uh, but even like in the way that his own mother portrayed him, right. He, that those final scenes with his mother, um, I, I was crying so hard last night watching that because it just felt, um, I think, especially right now that we're, you know, sheltering in place. Uh, I was thinking a lot about my own mother and, you know, she's still with us. Uh, and, but it, it, it made me think a lot about like my own time living in San Francisco, uh, not being out to her when I first moved here uh, and sort of living this other life that she didn't know about. Uh, she knew, she knew that I was here for school, um, but she didn't know that I was with somebody with, with, with another man. Uh, and it just brought me back to that. And it made me really think about like, despite like my mom knowing that I was here for the reason of, you know, getting a, an education, uh, there was still a part of that, that she didn't fully know what my experience was. Right. And when he's talking to his mother. You know, she's like, I could have come here. I could have been with you during that. And, you know, you you turned me away. You told me uh, that you lived a life that you you didn't want me to be a part of or that you didn't think I could be a part of. Uh, and then he, you know, he apologizes to her uh, saying, you know, and sorry that I couldn't be the son that you had hoped for. 
And it feels like such an honest conversation because up until this point, his mother is the one that's being very, um, very open with him, you know? And it's in that moment that he, you know, we, we never really know whether or not his mother knew about the lover. Uh, but there's an element of like that, that secret is still there between them. And then she like passes the next day, uh, you know, with him having promised that he would take her back to Spain. Um, so yeah, I think, um, sorry, we're, I don't even know where I was going just the portrayals that we have, the, the way that we want people to see us, you know, it's really ultimately up to us. Um, and that can be both damaging or it can be, it can help nurture relationships, I think. Well, and then there's that little nugget that comes out later on, I think in, in yet another serendipitous reunion where he is at the gallery and sees the portrait from the laborer and then finds out that there's an inscription on the back. That's a letter to him that his mother hid from him all this time. And, you know, even, even in the flashback scene where he, he faints from quote unquote heat stroke, um, like the mother sees the gorgeous, like rapturous drawing that this laborer has made of her sitting son and is not proud, is not like, oh my God, that's so beautiful. Oh, I love the work that you've done to my kitchen. She's just like, I don't know what's going on here. And he almost died. So I don't like any of this. And she kept that from her son his whole life. Like he would have never known about that if not for, you know, however convenient it is in the film, fate intervening and him finding that toward the end of his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like that, though, those scenes are, um, you know, sort of in a way reminiscent of other moments in the film, especially like with the script that he gives to his friend and his friend, um, you know, then connecting with his former lover because of that script. Uh, it's almost, I mean, it's, I think that narrative that the way that it repeats itself in different ways is really beautiful. Um, and it just speaks to like how those experiences, you know, really culminate um, into who we are as people, right? For him, like he even says, it doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter where it was or, or where that painting has been, um, you know, it's in the, it's with the person that it was intended for now. And that's ultimately what matters for him. Like it, he didn't really wanna pursue finding this man after all these years. There's something about the coincidences driving the plot forward that usually turns me off. Um, like Woody Allen had a very popular movie some years ago, maybe 10 years ago now, about, I think it was Midnight in Paris or something like that, where Owen Wilson's character, it's basically like an extended Saturday Night Live sketch. He keeps running into these caricatures of famous people throughout like the Gilded Age, the, the 20s in Paris. Like, oh, look, it's Toulouse or Trek with Salvador Dali. Oh, look, it's, you know, like, and after a while, I'm like, okay, just stop. But with this movie, I think because of all the honesty of the results of those serendipitous connections, like I was able to let it go because the honesty matters more than the convenience of moving the plot forward. Yeah, I think, and I keep going back to that opening scene and that scar though, right? And then the closing scene and he's in surgery. Um and so time here for me, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a mind fuck a little bit. Like you have all of these different 
parts of his life converging. And interestingly enough, like we're either with 60 year old Malo or we're with nine year old Malo, but like his whole time in between, I think the closest we get to it is through the, the, um, the one man show through the addiction. Like that is the closest we get to him during that time. And what's interesting about that is it's that time that seemingly has defined his career. And I think Ricardo, to your point about like, um, home and, and sort of what that means. It's like, I think there's something there. There's something about that chipping away of the mythology of this famous director who made this name for himself 30 years ago is now reconnecting all the parts and pieces um, and has this scar that then motivates him to maybe go tell that story. Like it's, it's shifting. He's coming home again in some way. Uh, but yeah, it took me, it took me like a beat to kind of be like, where are we, where are we going with this? And um, to that end, it, it did feel a little jarring when you, when you reach the, that final scene, right. And you, you're, seeing his mother, you're seeing this little boy and all of a sudden it's revealed that it's a film set. Like if I had to, if I had to break it down, you have like almost the intro and then um, sort of the heroin uh, addiction and the, the telling of his thirties, I guess, or twenties. And then the making of the movie that is him, like the making of who he is. Uh, and it's a lot to go through like metaphor, left, right, left, right, between the art and the time changes. It's it's a heavy film. Yeah, it really is. And I think that like there's there's something so interesting about the way that it all sort of converges, right? The way that it all is happening at the same time and you don't really know where it's going. But I think those moments, you know, where we do have those coincidences, it almost feels like every one of those coincidences feels like moments of closure that it almost like dismisses like sort of how all over the place some of it is. Um, I definitely, when I first watched it um, and saw his mother at old age, I was like, wow, Penelope Cruz, they, she did not age well. Uh, but then you find out that, oh yeah, Penelope Cruz is portraying his mother within the film about the film of his mother. Um, and I thought it was, it was just such a, a beautiful way to wrap up that final scene is just like, it's just, it's wonderful. You see this character using his art form to wrap up the grief that he's had in his life, the pain that he's had in his life, um, the experiences that he probably suppressed, right? And it's through these moments of closure that he's had that he's able to, to come to peace within, to create something of it and find peace within himself, I think. Yeah, I, I spent a decent portion of the latter half of the movie trying to figure out where the glory is going to come from, you know? Like, because there's so much dolor throughout this movie. Uh, there's so much pain. Like, every scene is basically about a different pain or a series of pains. And the pain keeps escalating. And he's getting some closure, like you said, but there's never really the glory, right? I feel like I kept thinking of, like, how, how would an American film resolve? Like, would, you know... Would there be a, a suburban street in Chicago where all the family comes back and he gets like the smiles and hugs in the last 10 minutes of the movie and all of these things are tied up in a bow? And instead, it's the more realistic portrayal of like, he's dealt with his past, he's dealt with the blocks, or revisiting all of these moments of his life have helped him move on and simply keep going. 
Like he hasn't made a film in an unspecified amount of time, but the film closes with him resuming that practice and dealing exactly with the stuff that he's been dealing with throughout the film. It's a very simple, realistic, yet still emotional way to close out knowing that, okay, that's the glory. It's the hopeful lift of moving on with what he's good at and what he wants to keep doing. Yeah. And I mean, it kind of goes back to that final, like one of the final lines, the little boy, you know, he says, uh, he asked his mother if he if there will be a, a theater, a cinema in the city they're going to. She's like, you know, as long as as long as we have a home, um, it's all that matters. Which, by the way, when they get to where they are meant to be going, Paterna or somewhere out in it seems like a more rural environment, she is not necessarily so keen on the home that is waiting for her. Just to hide yeah, the back. dad. The dad's like, yeah, I found us a place to live. And she's like, great, where is it? And he's like, these caves. And she's like, yeah, okay. And I guess we'll whitewash them and that'll be nice. Yeah, and I mean, but the the beautiful thing about that too is like it talks about the, it sort of touches on the innocence of, of young Banderas is that he's just like, he's like, a cave. Like he's just so excited about it, right? And he doesn't he doesn't know that, you know, what it means to, or why they're there really. Um, he's just excited about this cave and all that we can do with it. And he, you know, his parents are arguing, but then the next line is the little boy going like, could you pass me the the broom so I could sweep? <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, this kid's making the most out of this situation that he's in. Yeah, like as, as I was watching the scenes of the laborer or the, the, the worker man, uh, bathing in their kitchen i was like i don't know if i remember like i remember my first crush that first crush remains very vivid in my head but it has no actual weight on my life right like she didn't it was later on in life where i experienced things that were much more vivid (laughs) rather than my kindergarten crush and i think you know, as a child, he's right before he has heat stroke, he's experiencing something much more vivid, like this gorgeous naked man taking a bath in his kitchen. Um, but that is kind of his formative moment, I think, right? And I think maybe like, maybe not so much because, um, you know, that that's expected, you know, boys like girls, you know, etc. Um, but I think because it is like this, you know, he he titles the the script uh, the first the first desire, um, which the Spanish is saying the first wish. Uh, but yeah, I think I think like for him, like to be able to sort of tap into the root of his own attraction to men, uh, which we don't know whether or not he's like explicitly gay, um, but you know, we do get at the fact that he doesn't really know where that came from. And I think because, you know, because that's not expected, or even at the time, like, for a man to be gay was not accepted. Um, And I'm sure his mother wouldn't have approved, which is why he, you know, sort of shut her out of that part of his life. Um, But for him to sort of be able to, to remember the moment where he first felt attraction to a man, uh, in itself sort of creates this um, this other sense of closure. I know we keep talking about closure, but I think like the film is rooted in it. And I think that that specific moment uh, 
is like is almost like a really great culmination of all the things that we've seen up until this point yeah i wonder if the sequel to this is el ultimo desero where it's like all the closure in your life is the ultimate <laughs> desire <laughs> the bucket list <laughs> i think there's there's something interesting as well about the power dynamic there though right so you have this nine-year-old teaching i don't know how old the um i think his name is anil the character is anil or something to that effect where like what the age difference is, but you have this little like ball buster nine being like, you got to learn all the letters. Okay. I'm going to teach you, but you got to get your act together. And yes, there's a lot of homework and like, don't write that way. Don't hold the pen that way. I'm going to show you how to hold the pen um, and kind of finding his own power and his own voice. And this is pre-seminary. So like, here's this kid who doesn't have control over much of anything, um, but is very much into uh sort of wielding his 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 own education and it's not clear how he's come to that point right at nine being fully literate and being able to teach uh but that's there's there's sort of that tension there in some of the scenes um and then it does start to sort of reveal itself to be something else um especially there's that there's those few frames where he's like holding Anil's hand um, and sort of guiding him as he's learning to write uh, and talking to him about, well, you know, you can, if, you know, you're struggling with letters, but it's similar to, to drawing or to painting. If you can do that, you can do this. And almost taking uh, pleasure in seeing his student learning. Uh, and I think, again, for a nine-year-old, or, or I think he's eight or nine in that scene, that's a lot. That's sort of a a heavy ask both of the viewer and of that character i think in the moment and i think it's how he gets recognized to go to seminary i think like a, that woman is like you're the best teacher we've ever seen and we need your we need to develop that gift so you can teach others but presumably in the service of god rather than just an altruistic like you should be a teacher it's like no you need to recruit people into the church because you're so good at it but I think his reaction to this idea of going to that school is fascinating, right? Because if he's such a, like, I'm sure we've all met those kids either while we were in school or even older, you have like a, a nephew or you, I don't know, you've met like a coworker's kid who's like super smart, like the brainiac who's like, yes, I want to read all the books and do all the homework all the time. And you would have thought that this nine-year-old who was enjoying um, teaching so much would have jumped at the opportunity. However, the reaction, I mean, him him and his mother get into a fight about it. He does not want to go uh, and he runs away. That's kind of the whole, <laughs> how the scene kind of escalates. Um, and I thought that was, I mean, there's something there and that theme of God and his sort of disbelief carries through not only from the time when he's little to when he gets older and he reconnects with Federico and God is mentioned again. And he does sort of weave in a lot of talk of like Greek mythology, which I think is sort of interesting and the sort of the heroic nature. He, ta he talks a lot about Madrid as a bullring, like it was a tough ring that I was in, but I needed it. Like that was me. I survived it. It's almost like his little war. Like I was out in the plaza fighting with all these other people. It's his, his, his own internal dynamic of like, I must like, I don't know, conquer the populace or something like that. Conquer the the populace and like I'm building up myself as this god in some way. I mean, there's definitely a bit of narcissism 
there as he gets older. I mean, you could also say that that's where that's what he considers glory, right? You can say that the way that in which he built himself up and the way that he is portrayed by others is is his form of that. Um, I think it's also interesting that even though, like, to get back to sort of the the way in which he's able to teach and that being the reason for him being sent uh, to the seminaries that like he doesn't end up getting the education that he was promised there. Right. Um, and not for a reason that's like, Oh, it was a bad school. And, you know, it was more for the reason that like, Oh, there's this other talent that, that he can be um, more helpful in. Right. Uh, which is, which is interesting. There, there's sort of this, this art path, for him that he hasn't chosen that's been forced on him uh but in a way maybe you know has is quite literally a way of him finding his voice you know as a writer um through his own physical voice uh and i think that like ties to the way that like music is used throughout the film you know he's opening with his mother and the other women uh by the river and they're like singing and it's like a moment where he truly sees his mother really happy. Uh, and I think that, I think that just like emphasizes how important like those like moments, those early moments in life that you don't really remember uh, how much those are so uh, formative in who we are. And you might not even remember them actually how they happened. Like they may just be amalgamations of other memories and or false memories or whatever. And then to have, all of that explained like he's got this beautiful voice and it's his talent and his gift. And then just another manifestation of blockage later in the film where he has a physical impediment in his throat and he can't drink things anymore. <laughs> like he chokes at like the most random benign things and he has to have surgery to get it fixed. Like yet another layer of metaphor that I'm only just realizing as we're talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to thank you both for being the guests and tolerating me as the moderator. <laughs> now that's closure. <laughs> <laughs>